Welcome back to the Evans Based Dermatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 98 KOLs and Pharma Cash. Now, I have been off for a little while. I typically take a break during the summer, but I am excited to be back, and I'm going to try and get out some podcasts over the fall, in the lead up to, of course, one of my favorite times of the year, the American College of Rheumatology Annual Meeting. Now today, I'm actually going to be covering a little bit of an atypical format because I would love to discuss a tweet that I just put out. Here is my tweet. New American College of Rheumatology Guidelines for the Management of ILD Published! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. How much cash and conflicts of interest with Boringer Ingelheim, a pharma company that makes it intended, do you think the authors of these guidelines had? It appears that my readers are relatively cynical, because as it stands today, the majority of people picked option number four, which was over $3.5 million. That is the correct answer. There were over $3.5 million of um, conflicts of interest for the authors of these guidelines. Now, I think that's an obvious problem, but it's hard to talk about exactly why it's a problem. Now, to kind of get to that, I was actually going to share another episode of my newsletter, which I highly recommend you subscribe to. Go to ebroom.com and you can find links there. Now, the newsletter I'm about to read was actually one that I published a couple weeks back, but I think it covers a lot of the ground that I want to discover here. And, you know, it covers a couple other issues that have been bothering me lately. So without further ado, here goes. The differential, KOLs and pharma cash. This week's newsletter may be a bit spicy because this week I've been a little bit annoyed at rheumatology key opinion leaders, or KOLs. These are the rheumatologists who receive NIH funding and run clinical trials, give speeches at national meetings, and serve as program directors or division chairs. They are often, though certainly not always, the rheumatologists who receive large quantities of payments from pharmaceutical companies. Lately, many of them have been downplaying the risk of malignancy and cardiovascular disease associated with JAK inhibitors, which seems suspicious to me. First heading, how many and how much? The first article I want to discuss this week is one we published in Arthritis and Rheumatology entitled, Industry Payments to Practicing U.S. Rheumatologists 2014-2019. My research team and I downloaded records from the Open Payments Database, which tracks payments from pharmaceutical companies to practicing physicians. Over the six years of available data, over 1.5 million payments were made to U.S. rheumatologists, totaling 221 million. This sounds like a large number, but I was, what was truly striking to me was that the bifurcation of the rheumatologist types. Now, most rheumatologists, including, I'm assuming, most people listening to this podcast, accepted very few payments, very small quantities. Over two-thirds of the people in the database received less than $1,000 per year. A small cadre of roughly 350 rheumatologists, however, received over $100,000 each and accounted for nearly 80% of all pharmaceutical spending. In short, the pharma strategy is small gifts for everyone, big check KOLs. Jack Apocalypse. These same folks seem to have a lot to say about the safety of JAK inhibitors. I recommend listening to my podcast about the oral surveillance study, which is a large randomized trial of the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib against the TNF inhibitors adalimab or tanercept. The study identified an increased risk of both major adverse cardiac events and malignancy among patients who received JAK inhibitors, establishing number needed to harm of 55 for malignancy and 113 for MACE over a five-year period. Those numbers are not prohibitive, and I still use JAK inhibitors, but all patients should be counseled before initiating therapy. To trade you two quarters for a dollar? In response to this large and well-run RCT, KOLs have been sharing underpowered observational data sets, which is an epistemological catastrophe. It's fine to say that oral surveillance had generalizability limitations, but it is not reasonable to ignore an RCT of nearly 3,000 people that were followed for a medium of four years because a few observational studies found a different result. The enthusiasm with such studies have been embraced by KOLs is frankly anti-science. Real world, real risk. 
The best observational study to date addressing this question is the STAR-RA target trial emulation study, broadly which broadly recapitulated the cardiovascular result risks observed in oral surveillance. This study used a trial calibration approach where they attempted to recapitulate the oral surveillance eligibility criteria and structure using observational data. In this context and using higher quality of data, they observed a risk of MACE that aligned closely with that observed in the oral surveillance. When they extended their eligibility criteria to patients who would not have been included in oral surveillance, they observed no increased risk of malignancy. From my perspective, this actually supports the findings of oral surveillance. Among patients with risk factors for MACE, JAKs cause increased risks of MACE. Maybe cancer? Question mark? The STAR-RA study also evaluated the question of malignancy raised by oral surveillance. In this case, was unable to replicate the findings from oral surveillance. Does this mean we should favor the real-world data over trials? I'm a big defender of observational data for causal inference, but in this case would give an emphatic no. RCTs minimize bias by setting a defined starting point, equilibrating measured and unmeasured confounders, and mitigating the multiplicity problem. STAR-RA is the best study uh, that I have seen to date on, and the best way to approach observational data. But at the end of the day, I would favor a good RCT over that. Now, practice points. The oral surveillance study identified an increased risk of malignancy and cardiovascular disease among patients given a JAK inhibitor instead of a TNF inhibitor. This was observed in an RCT, which is the strongest form of science we do in medicine. KOLs who receive funding from pharmaceutical companies have been downplaying this risk. Do not be fooled. The risk is real, and your patients need to know about it. So, main points number one, read oral surveillance. Be sure to counsel your patients about the risk of malignancy and MACE, which is caused by JAK inhibitors. The risk is small enough that many patients may plausibly decide to use a JAK inhibitor, but they should do this after informed consent. When you're at a conference or see flyers from a local KOL, look them up in the open payments database. You may be surprised by what you find. Observational data is getting better, but RCTs are still the best science we have. That's the end of the newsletter. And just, I wanna riff for a couple minutes more about this topic. Now, the point of this newsletter was to say, like, look, this big RCT was published. I find it hard to discount the results of that RCT. Observational data has largely recapitulated it with some caveats. And at the end of the day, I just, it's hard for me to say that any observational study will ever, ever supersede oral surveillance. And so until someone decides to do another study like oral surveillance, I will be counseling patients about this risk as I think you should be. Now, the broader problem that I'm talking about here, though, is the problem of pharmaceutical companies and their influence in our key opinion leaders, or just, just, just writ large, their influence in rheumatology. Now, let me say there's a couple polls here. There's people who say that you should have no, in, no involvement with pharmaceutical companies ever, and I think that's a, a defensible position. Now, I, I don't think that's tenable for myself. I really believe in randomized controlled trials. Pharma runs good randomized controlled trials that really have helped my patients, and, and I honestly want to be more involved, if anything. I want to be involved in helping people design trials, and I want to be help, involved in helping people make sure that they report trials properly. So I, I'm, I'm not a pharmaceutical absolutist by any stretch of the imagination, and I, mean, I, I am actively trying to work more with pharmaceutical companies to do better work. Now, the flip side is a position that was I recently saw on Twitter, which is that you know the more conflicts of interest you have, the the less conflicted you are, because at some point you have conflicts of interest from every single pharmaceutical company. So it's not like you're favoring one over the other. I, I also vehemently disagree with this. You know, the problem with this perspective is that there's tons of drugs that aren't actually. Uh, pharmaceutical drugs right now. So, you know, leading someone to favor nintetinib over mycophenolate. I mean, that, that mycophenolate doesn't have a lobby. Nobody's getting money for mycophenolate right now. But I think that mycophenolate should be the first line for systemic sclerosis associated ILD. And, you know, I'm going to keep saying that. And <laughs> I am just skeptical of the enthusiasm by which nintetinib is received.
This obviously brings me back to the recently published ACR Interstitial Lung Disease Guidelines, whose authors received over $3.5 million from a single pharmaceutical company, Boringer Ingelheim, which makes Nintendinib. Now, I, it's impossible to run a guideline project without including some people who have conflicts of interest. Like I said, most rheumatologists have received some money at some point, but there's just kind of an egregiousness to this guideline project that I, I just found quite surprising. Authors received over half a million dollars each from Boringer Ingelheim. I mean, it's just, I, I can see how someone would say that, you know, I went to ACR and I got a couple brownies at the, in the conference center and they dinged me for 60 bucks. Like, I don't think that person is deeply conflicted. Or there's some people who say, you know, I, I gave a talk one time and I, I don't think that's going to profoundly alter the way you see a drug. But I mean, a half a million dollars is just a lot of money. I mean, would you, would you, if you were a doctor in clinic and a patient said, Hey, what should I use? And you're like, Hey, I think you should try this Nintendo drug. And you know, I should admit upfront that I've taken half a million dollars from the company that made, made it, but you know, it's a great drug. So you should take it. Every single patient is going to look at you in the eye and say, really doc? And be a little bit disappointed. So I, I just think that there's, there's gotta be a middle ground here where rheumatologists work with pharmaceutical companies, hold them to a high standard. But, but also be sure that when we do things like create you know, consensus-based recommendations or guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology about how to manage a disease, that, that we're just a little bit embarrassed if multiple guideline authors have received really truly enormous sums of cash from a company that you know clearly has a vested interest in this. Uh, Boringer Ingelheim is going to make billions of dollars off of Nintendinib. That doesn't make them an evil company. I'm not super anti-capitalist or anything. And, you know, at the end of the day, Nintendo is a drug that has a place in the armamentarium. I mean, I will prescribe Nintendo in the right situation. And I think that it is a legitimate advance to have it, especially in, you know, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's been, you know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say a game changer, but it's been a big step forward for those diseases. I don't think that's true for autoimmune related ILD. Um, I'm happy to talk about that on a future podcast. But, you know, at the same time, I just think that it's a little bit egregious. So with that somewhat unhappy note, uh, I hope you are glad the podcast is back. I'm glad to be here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to my newsletter. It's ebroom.com. You can find uh, links and uh, have a great day.